Welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast, hosted by Alison Humphreys. The Recruitment Leadership Podcast is here to help those in the recruitment industry gain awareness and understanding on the hot topics faced by those in the business of hiring people. In each episode, Alison Humphreys is joined by a fellow expert to offer professional knowledge, insight and advice on the biggest subjects affecting recruitment businesses. It's the podcast to listen to for recruitment business frontrunners seeking expert information from industry-leading advisors. Welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. I'm Alison Humphreys and I'm joined today by a friend and former colleague, indeed boss, um, Alex Elliott. Welcome, Alex. Oh, I like that, Alison. Referencing at the beginning, boss, I'll take it. <laughs> it's not often so, I get to a boss, so I'm going to take that. That's fine. That's brightened me up. <laughs> Alex, together with John Coxon, founded Liquid Personnel, um, a business that became the market leader in placing contract social workers, amongst other things. And um, plenty of people will know the story of Liquid Personnel. And later, uh, he hired me. and. Um, later on, we uh, took that business uh, to sale. And um, there's plenty of information around that in the public domain, and that's not what we're here to talk about today. We're here to, uh, to hone, it, hone in on a very specific as- aspect, which I think has been really significant in terms of liquid. I know it's still um, significant for you now, Alex, but it's, it's a, a really important factor in recruitment businesses' success, and that is internal hiring. Successful, predictable, as possible internal hiring has become a real differentiator between those businesses that fly and those businesses that really struggle to get off the ground. So, Alex, that explains briefly how you and I have worked together in the past. Obviously, since you sold Liquid, um, you've uh, got an interest in, a, in at least one other business. Um, can you just explain to the audience what you're doing now? Sure, so I, I work close, I, I'm still um, heavily focused on recruitment. So I do, I, am, I have um, interest in a recruitment company called Strive Sales, who are a go-to-market specialist within the um, VC-backed tech space based in Manchester. And I also have started investing into the recruitment tech and HR tech sort of environment. So I've got a couple of really interesting investments there that I've made recently. Um, so, yeah, keeping myself busy and out of trouble would be a good way to put it, Alison. Okay. Trying to, should I say. So I know you and I have got a lot of, to say on this subject. Um, maybe a good place to start on internal hiring would be to look at what what we see as the most common mistakes that recruiters make when hiring for themselves. So over to you, what are the, the common errors that you've observed? I think there's a lot, and, and, and I can say that with confidence, probably because having interviewed, I was thinking about this when we had a chat recently, and I, I must have interviewed well over a thousand people in my time for, for, mm-hmm. for recruitment roles. So I've probably made all of these mistakes myself. So I'm probably quite well positioned to sort of talk about some of them. I think I think if you were to group them together, the most common ones that I see, certainly one is um one would be I think psychological biases are a massive starting point for a lot of recruiters. So 
one thing that I tend to see a lot of people do when they start hiring is they make snapshot decisions on individuals. And then the rest of the interview becomes a process of confirmation bias. Actually, this is my first impression of that individual, whether it's similarity bias, horns versus halos, whatever you want to call it. Someone makes a quick snapshot impression on someone. And then the rest of the interview becomes an opportunity to confirm that initial assumption on that individual rather than actually digging down and identifying evidence to support whether that person's going to be suitable for the job or not. So I think that's one that I see quite common or commonly. Another one would be the, the, sh sh the sheer rigorousness of the process, I think, is something that people fall down on starting with clarity of purpose so what exactly is it that they're trying to hire for what are the key indicators of success when they do hire someone um, and how clear are they on identifying those things then it's a case of actually building a structured and aligned um, assessment process to ensure that you are digging into and identifying those key drivers of success which you've identified as part of your initial scoping process and then lastly, it's just the skill of the interviewer. And again, I think that, that that sounds a little bit blasé, but it's one of those things that I think interviewing is one of those jobs that recruiters automatically think they're going to be good at. And mm -hmm. strangely, counterintuitively, from my experience, recruiters aren't, aren't actually typically, when they start off, very good at interviewing other recruiters. So... I think it's a case of going back to basics and making sure that you've got some of those really fundamental competencies nailed we were really, really good at that, I believe, at Liquid. So the ability to be able to ask, you know, level five questions. And what I mean by that is that so many people I sit in initially with interviews and they'll ask a question, they get an answer, they say, oh, thank you. OK. And then they move on to the next question. And a little bit like the, the process of five whys, I think you've got to keep digging with regards to the questions that you ask. And I think that's a skill that you develop over time. The, the ability to get the balance right between pushing and pulling, I think, is absolutely critical to good interviewing. You want to be you want to really dig. You want to be you, you want to be able to not take that first bit of information for granted and really push and challenge the under, other individual without coming across too aggressive. So I think mm. that balance between pushing and pulling is really important linked to psychological biases so many recruiters they decide they like someone early on and then the interview just quickly becomes a process of them selling themselves and the company which mm. when you think about it from a sales perspective is bizarre because we all know that really it's about solution selling it's about asking lots of questions identifying pain problems challenges and then being able to offer solutions to those to those things but i think we lose sight of that in the interview process for some reason and we just simply start bombarding the person with information as to why they should want to join us so there's some examples around the rigorousness of the process. And then the third thing that I'd say is really, really important. And again, this one isn't talked about as much. I think it's after the hiring itself. It's being pragmatic enough with regards to whether you've made a good hire or not. And I think people drag that out. So mm -hmm. I think, again, just from our experience of having worked quite closely at Liquid, I think we were really good at hiring. But I think we we're also really, really good at hiring at knowing that we're not always going to get it right. And the interview, we, we, we spoke, we used to talk about this. The real interview is their probation. And 
if someone is a is a mouse in the interview, sorry, a lion in the interview and then a mouse on the sales floor when they're training or they're not demonstrating the types of things that they committed to and they're not living up to the expectations that you've agreed at the beginning of the process as part of the interview. I think you have to be compassionately pragmatic about that and and not hold on longer than you should do if you've made a bad decision as part of the hiring process. Oh, so true. I absolutely want to talk more about about that, the whole managing the probation period. But there's a lot there in what you just said. Um, the balance between push and pull, uh, the need to uh, interrogate, but without aggression, really important. Um, and then the snap decisions. And uh, you know what? I, it, it occurs to me often that in internal hiring, recruiters are doing the kind of things that they would now criticize their clients for doing. Um, so just to add to those, to your list there, number one, you said about knowing exactly what the profile is you're looking for. Um, so I, I've, I've observed all very recently, I've observed a, a firm of recruiters that hire on CVs. So they are literally looking first of all at the degree, the university and the class of degree. And uh, then they're looking for evidence of sporting achievement. Now, do you know what? I haven't got an issue with sporting achievement as an example of goal orientation and you know dedication to work, you know, working towards achievement, competitiveness, all of those things. But as a you know, a bit of CV information that was regarded as essential, they were literally rejecting candidates who didn't demonstrate those qualities in this specific way. And I bet you those people, Alison, I bet you they've got a good um, degree from a red brick university and they were yeah. also in a sporting team. So, again, Absolutely. it goes back to that similarity piece, doesn't it? Absolutely. The, I think we call it Apollo syndrome, don't we? Where we say, well, okay. I've been successful. I'm going to guess that this is what's made me successful. And therefore, I'll just look for that. Correlation, um, not causation. Exactly. Thank you. And um, so definitely seeing seeing that all the time. Um, the second piece is you would criticize your clients if they hadn't worked out a clear and and let's face it, streamlined process that matches thoroughness with ex acceptability to candidates. And look, I think we all know that in the course of the last five years, this balance of power has really shifted, hasn't it, between employers and, and potential employees. And um, I've seen people overload their process um, so that people just like exit from it halfway through. Um, I have also seen them just not work out in advance what that process is going to be. So and what you get then, we've probably all experienced this, is being invited back for one, two, three, four, uh, eight interviews which are actually the same interview eight times. They're not actually adding anything. So working out what you're going to interrogate and at what level and how um, in advance is really Love helpful. I feel like that's the advice we would give our clients, right? And, and the interview, um, you've, you've made me think of another really important one there. The interview, you've got to change your frame of reference, actually, or it's the perspective of it. It's not about making a decision on an individual. It's about identifying evidence of the areas that you're looking, which will then determine the decision-making process that should come at the end. So I think although that's a slight twist, I think it's really relevant. People go into an interview to start thinking yes or no, 
And actually what they should be thinking is this is the key thing that I'm assessing against and I want to find evidence for or against that particular factor and then rinse and repeat with various other factors. And then at the end of the process, you're in a really good position to be able to talk about evidence rather than hunches and sort of gut feelings, which are often based upon, again, that those biases we spoke about at the beginning. Yeah, really well put, thank you. So we had a lot of success at Liquid Personnel at hiring at scale. Um, so to put some metrics on that, at the point when I joined it, we had 40, 45 staff, including um, business support. Um, and two years later, we had 145 staff. So we had to get, definitely we had to get really good at it. But let's just talk about what, uh, you know, all the things we put in place to make that proposition compelling um, and to make sure that people were successful. So why don't you kick this off? Yeah, I think, I think firstly, as with most things, it depends a little bit, and, and this depends upon the stage of growth. So I think our, if we're talking about our in, employee value proposition, I think in the early days there are some similarities, but also there were some big differences towards the end as well. So early on, it was it was much more the mission and the vision is always incredibly important, and the values that are aligned with that are in, incredibly important regardless of stage of growth. But I think especially early on that's something you're really, really having to bring to life because effectively what you're trying to do is sell an exciting but believable view of the future. And when you don't have a demonstrable track record as a larger recruitment company does, I think that's that, that that's even more important to be able to talk about the future in, in, a, in a compelling way. I think, again, early on, it's about the opportunity of getting to work closely with the founders. It's career progression opportunities because you don't have an established leadership team at that time. It's the opportunity to come in and really differentiate yourself and get on a fast track to success because, you know, effectively those spots are, um, are open, are available to grab. Um, I think earning potential was really, really good early in, in the early days. It always comes back to culture again. So I think culture is incredibly important. And then as time went on, I think we became a bit more sophisticated or, I think we just had a lot more track record to be able to show our growth rates. We, we won an awful lot of awards. We had a lot of industry recognition. We had an extremely, you know, you, you were absolutely fundamental in driving our L&D programme, which then became, you know, award winning. So I think we could demonstrate to trainees when they came in that we had a conveyor belt system that effectively when you came in, you were going to be supported in a really, really close and structured way. And we could map that out for them. I think career progression is always important and that becomes more structured as time goes on. So early on, you could probably talk a little bit more in a looser, but more, you know, fast progression. Whereas the, the advantage later on is you can say here is exactly what we've got from a career progression perspective. So you've got more structure mm -hmm. to it. And then I think you've got demonstrable examples of people who've come into the business who are similar to that individual that you're interviewing, who have who had similar aspirations to that individual. And then you can actually map those two together and say, here's an example of the same type of individual as the role you're coming into, who's got similar aspirations, and this is what they've done with their career here. So again, I think you just have a lot more, again, going back to that point around evidence, I think you've got a lot more facts and information to be able to support and tailor why your organization is that is is the right organization for the individual that you're um you're interviewing yeah really good points there just to expand on on a couple of those the you make an interesting distinction between early stage 
and later on. And it's I would definitely um, agree with you that later on in the growth of liquid, this was about offering people uh, not quite a guarantee, but a clear track record of predictable success if you if you join us that we had the transparency of career structure and reward and promotion we had a uh, a learning and development program which um, led consistently to success and therefore the earnings there's also a point there about who you involve in the process isn't there um that people want to see somebody who they can identify with um, and I see a lot of really good work, by the way, going on on um, Work For Us videos and so forth that do capture that um, now from recruitment businesses. But they, they also want to see people that they can really look up to. There's a, there's a risk of involving some people who have reached a certain level of seniority and who want to continue to hire people that they would find easy to manage. Mm -hmm. yeah? um, I think we can pro probably most listeners can recognize this, that somebody who may have in your early days have achieved, you know, even team leader or manager status may be a little bit hesitant about hiring people who are challenging, who look different to them. Um, and that can effectively put a, a lid on the skills and talent that you're hiring. Um, because if we're only going to hire people who are worse than us, <laughs> how are we going to grow the business, as it were? Um, so there, there's a couple of other things I would add, um, and that is that, and we weren't there at the beginning, but we had a clear understanding eventually of what the profile was that we were looking to hire. And so all the evidence you mentioned earlier that was collected during the process was for the right things. Um, and not for not for random things like oh he speaks a language you know something like that which just wasn't relevant to our market and I the, the the other thing I'd add is that actually selling the market that we were in because we were hiring you know almost entirely entry-level people with no previous recruitment experience they were had often toured around other recruiters hadn't they and um actually being able to promote the market we were in its characteristics the fact that it was you know statutory requirement to provide social services the fact that there was you know continuous high demand was really important i think because how could anyone outside um, the recruitment industry have known that that it would be different from for example i don't know placing uh, a high-end it specialists in germany that kind of thing moving on most of our listeners may have some sort of hiring plan in mind for this year at least yeah there's let's just talk about this this need to have a, a reasonable process which is designed to dig out evidence of the right traits so perhaps a good place to start with this is uh alex why don't you tell us what what traits you look for sure so again it's business and market dependence, because I think the type of individual you look for in one market will differ to another, as you've highlighted yourself. So look, PPSD, you talked about hiring profile at Liquid, that's still in, ingrained in my brain, because that's why, and we won't go into any detail now, but we had four key hiring criteria at Liquid, which was something we really, really focused on. Now, 
without going into those individual criteria, the reality was they were geared towards a particular market. They were geared towards contract recruitment. They were geared towards being closely aligned with the type of buyer persona, the type of candidate we worked with, and also the type of client. Strive is a different marketplace. So we have we have seven key criteria at Strive. Five of them are behavioral and two of them are intelligence orientated. So we on the intelligence side, we look at a few different traits of um, emotional intelligence and we look at general intelligence. So, again, we use psychometric profiling to get objective results on that stuff, (laughs) because the reality is from from the work that I've done, for instance, at Liquid, you know, I I looked at a data set of 200, 250 odd recruiters who'd come through the business. I categorized them into A, B and C performers based upon their length of service and also the rate of progression they went through the business to, to, to give as an objective a measure as possible as to their performance standards. And then I kind of just looked at all of that data and identified different things. And one of the things I identified as an example was that people with a certain level of GIA were more likely to be A performers than they were B. And in turn, a a still high but slightly lower level GIA would determine more likely a B performer than a C performer. So you can can identify all these sorts of patterns. So I think GIA is really important. That's something we still look at at Strive. And then, as I say, without going into the details of our market and why it's particularly relevant, because I don't want to give too much away, um, that there are a couple of facets of emotional intelligence we identify. On the behavioral side, there's five. And again, these aren't, I don't know how much detail you want to go into because they're not probably rocket science, but we look at things like drive, we look at grit, we look at conscientiousness, we look at um, competitiveness, and we look at coachability. So they're the five things that we look for. Each of those has got a clear definition attached to them, because again, I think that's really important. If you've got lots and lots of people together in the same room and you ask them what their definition of grit or conscientiousness, as an example, would be a good one. I think there'd be lots of different definitions there. So clear definition of what that is. And then I think it's a case of building a scorecard and a matrix, which actually based upon an aligned structure and an aligned assessment process, which is really geared towards identifying each and every one of those things you've then got a way to be able to come together and not disagree necessarily on whether that person's right or wrong, but a way to come together and disagree on how that individual driver has been evaluated as part of the process, because that should be quite easy to do compared to, well, I think this person's driven and I don't. Well, actually, what's your definition of drive and what's your examples you've come? And then when you go through that sort of process, I think it becomes really easy at that point to be able to identify whether you're, in agreement or not about those particular drivers i don't know there's a lot of information there but again that's kind of the process we go through to determine drivers and then we, we we use regression analysis with that stuff so we're constantly evaluating it once someone's actually come into the business they'll continue to be reviewed and assessed on that criteria because what you don't want to do is have a criteria as part of your hiring process and then actually identify within six months, it doesn't matter whether someone's conscientiousness, a high level of conscientiousness, or, you know, it really doesn't matter whether someone's determined, uh, competitive. So I think it's a case of constantly analysing and assessing that stuff to make sure that it's not a one and done process, but you are ensuring that you're as as accurate as possible on an ongoing uh, uh, basis. Mm, Yes. So loads there um, in terms of uh, of what you look for. So you mentioned the GIA, which is one test publishers um, questionnaire to assess what's called fluid intelligence. 
So if I could just take a minute to explain that. Fluid intelligence is not what you can learn. It is about your ability in real time to pick up, for example, new patterns and adapt to those um, and uh, you know, to make adjustments. So it's actually a really good assessment in my view for the constantly changing environment of recruitment. And, um, but it's not enough to measure it on its own. And so matched with some sort of behavioral questionnaire that uh, indicates the traits your business is interested in, I think it, that, that combination can be very, very helpful. I've got a few favorite um, test producers, but um, we will not refer to any of them specifically here today. Um, and you've hit the nail on the head. Just my last point on that. I really yeah. like that point about crystallized versus fluid intelligence, because just because someone's got a degree and they've demonstrated the ability to crystallize information and then just regurgitate it in an exam, that is very, very different from fluid intelligence, which is really geared towards recruitment where you're sat on a, a video or you're on the phone and you have to think on your feet and you have to be commercially aware of what's going on and make good, uh, good, good decision making um, there. I've yeah. seen lots of people who don't have a degree who've got excellent fluid intelligence. And I've got I've seen lots of people who've got very, very credible academic backgrounds who simply don't have the fluid intelligence and the speed of thought to be able to process information quickly enough and react accordingly in a good commercial sense. They're two really, really different things. And that's why we believe it's not good enough just to say this person's got a two one from a red brick. Um, you know, we want to dig deeper than that. So that, that I think you described you that. Just really put me in mind of a story that I quote in my book. <laughs> great great <laughs> book, by the way. Um, seven behaviors of successful recruitment leaders. Um, we obviously used to see at Liquid a quite a large number of recent grads from the various Manchester universities. And I remember actually interviewing two people who have the same degree and the same class of degree from Manchester University. But one of them had had to work diligently every day in the library to achieve that degree. And the other one had had a part-time job done quite a lot of socializing and still came out with the same degree now sometimes you'd ask people which one would you hire I know which one I would hire and that's the person who had been able to squeeze in so much more um, in, in those circumstances but um, a lot of people go into their all right hire the diligent person and I suppose it depends which which uh, function you're hiring for in recruitment and shop and who you're selling to as well I think is super important who you're selling yeah. to, isn't it? Again, it's aligning with the buyer persona. We've been down the psychometric route on a number of previous episodes um, of the podcast. So what I'd like to just um, pick your brain on now, Alex, is thoughts on process. So thinking now particularly about, um, about inexperienced hires for the sales side in recruitment, um, do you have a preferred process that you think is mutually acceptable without sort of nailing my mask to an exact process because again you know as you can probably tell I like to say it depends because I think often it does I think you've got to front load your screening a little bit with with trainees because with an experienced hive it's very quick it's very easy to quickly identify whether someone's worth spending time with and, I, and that sounds terrible, but it's also kind of the truth. You've got to separate the wheat from the chaff a little bit quicker, I think, with, with trainee recruiters. 
Um, so I do believe in pre-screening a little bit more with trainee recruiters because simply without a demonstrable track record, um, you've got to do that. So I, I do think a pre-screen is important and that pre-screen, you know, we, we jokingly refer, refer to it as a sniff test. So, you know, uh, we, we'll have five things that we're going to cover off in that pre-screen, which could be half an hour to an hour on the telephone, typically with internal recruiter. Um, if you have one in your organization and what that individual is really looking to do is sense check this individual being put through to a first stage interview where they're going to spend maybe an hour to two hours with one of the senior business leaders. So we, we do more front loading with our trainees. We believe we, we still believe just because they're a trainee, you should get basically your your most competent and, and, and arguably impressive interviewer into the process as quickly as possible. Because I think from my ex experience, the EVP stuff is so, so important and you should be really thoughtful and 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 um, strategic about how you think about that stuff and how you position it. But also from experience, the best interviewer wins most of the time, regardless of the EVP. So the best interviewer who's going to be able to demonstrate the most credibility and get buy-in and consensus from that individual and sell back to them effectively in a way which is aligned with their own motivators, I think they're going to win. So even though it's a trainee, one of the mistakes I sometimes see recruitment companies make is they leave it too late to get their most heavy, their, their, their heavy hitters at the end of the process. And to be quite frank, if the heavy hitters from the other three or four recruitment companies have been in at the process, building a relationship with them and really wowing them early on, it's too late sometimes, I think, to win it because they've made their decision early on in the process and then they're just going through the thing and validating it themselves. So I think that's really important. I think meeting the team's really important with trainees. We've spoken about psychometrics. There's no technical background, so it's really a case of being able to dig into their behavioural drivers. And for me, the thing that we used to do a lot and we were really, really good at, we called it the CV talk through. But in reality, with trainees, it's not really a CV talk through. What it is is a pre-employment and social history talk through. So, you know, we, we used to laugh and joke that you're almost a, a psychiatrist in those early stage interviews, because really what you're trying to do is dig down to such a level that you really do understand that individual and the decisions they've made, because the best predictor of future behavior are patterns of historical behavior. So if you can start to really, really understand someone on a base level from literally when they were a child, the upbringing they had, the challenges they faced, the things they've achieved and the decisions they've made. There's more to it. Their key learns, their key mistakes, all of those sorts of things. If you can get really, really good at um, digging into that stuff in a way that isn't um, intrusive, it is intrusive, isn't it? Of course it is. But if you can do it in a way that isn't doesn't come across as intrusive, but more thoughtful and interested and engaged, I think you learn so much about a trainee. And that, for me, was the best way I had that I could confidently say at the end, here is an individual who doesn't have a, uh, you know, they might not have really any track record from an employment perspective that we can benchmark them against. But what we can say is, here is evidence of that individual's conscientiousness. Here is evidence of that individual's drive or not. Here is evidence of how coachable that individual is. So sports great you know you used that example earlier but it's the most obvious one right but does it matter whether you played sport or does it matter whether you were became a grandmaster at chess or 
whether you were massively interested in fashion and you took yourself off to Paris and you spent time, blah, blah, whatever it might be. I don't know where that example came from because me and fashion are probably the two most misaligned <laughs> things in the world. A need for achievement is a need for achievement and it doesn't really matter if it's sports. So again, I'm rambling a little bit. The point I'm trying to make is there's so much valid information you can identify with the trainee that I think just gets glossed over. And I think what a lot of recruiters do is they say, what are your motivators? What are your drivers? How well did you do at university? And then, as you said earlier, that becomes the, you know, that that's what they believe is indicators of success. Whereas for those reasons that I've described, I don't think that's enough. Um, so again, a long-winded answer, but but hopefully there's some flavour there for you. No, that's great. I find that um, really, I think our audience will find that really helpful. Um, I, I am always looking with a, an inexperienced hire for evidence that they want to sell. And like you say, they may not have had a sales job previously, but where have they, where can they actually talk us through a detailed example of where they'd had to sell an idea or get people to change their behaviours? Um, and sometimes they can provide that evidence without any work history. Although, to be honest, I must admit, I would generally favour people who would sort out opportunities to make money, even a paper round, you know. Um, so important. Uh, one of my favourite questions also is, uh, if you decided that you, recruitment was your calling, when exactly did you decide that? And what did you do about it from that moment? And if... Those people who go, well, I've always wanted to uh, be in recruitment, but can't actually point out to any action, probably aren't going to work um, in this in the environment that we're in. What well, a good um, point. And last one, I'm going to jump in again, Alison. You've just reminded mm. me of a really, really important point. It's managing expectations with trainees because you, you, you have to try and scare them. And I think one of the things that we were good at, actually, the more exclusive you make something and the harder the challenge and, and sometimes the more unpleasant you make it sound, while at the same time talking about the positive outcomes that can, that can come alongside that, I think the more attractive it makes it. But also what you do, again, your job as a good interviewer when you're hiring trainees is to make sure they know what they're, they're letting themselves in for. Because regardless of how much you think you know how hard it's going to be, it's probably going to be two or three times harder than that when you actually come to it emotionally rather than just intellectually. So I think that's part of the process as well when you're interviewing trainees. It's making sure that expectations are super, super aligned with regards to what they should be expecting from you, but also the job and the opportunity and the downside of that, because there's an awful lot in that first 12 months which will trip them up if you're not brutally honest with them about, you know, what that looks like. Mm. scare them Alison there you go that in short that's my that's my feedback scare them as much as you can <laughs> um so just a couple of points on hiring experienced hires I noticed that um a number of recruiter recruitment business owners I observe don't change their process between inexperienced and experienced hires and or at least not significantly and that that to me is a mistake I think there's very limited value in asking an inexperienced um, hire to prepare a presentation on your sector, because that's just testing their, their search skills, you know? Um, and that, unless you give them very something very precise in by way of specification, I'm not sure that it really tells you anything about their ability to do the job. Um, whereas I would say with an experienced hire, I would want to see some kind of plan for their first few months. Um, 
what inputs and outputs they would anticipate and um, for the sector going on what's what's changing but there's one point I really want to shout out to all our listeners and that is taking up references people don't do this nearly enough and when challenged I've had a lot of people say back to me well do you know what I think a lot of uh, a lot of people are you know really bad in recruitment and other recruitment business owners are just going to give them a negative reference because they didn't like them or because they've left um I take the view that yeah you know we all don't we have to make a judgment about the person who's giving the reference um but nevertheless if people took these up consistently I think they might be shocked in the recruitment industry about uh, the disparity, shall we say, between what a recruiter has told you, start dates, leaving dates, pay arrangements, uh, how much they build, and what their former boss will tell you. So Reason for leaving, like, it's amazing. There's, um, there's two sides to every story, but th- those stories are often as, as, as opposite as they could possibly be. Um, yes. I think the threat of the reference check alone can be you know it's a talk right the talk aka the threat of reference check i think if you use that in a in a really good tactical way at the right stage in the process and you inform an individual that prior to a job offer you know you are going to be taking reference checks with all appropriate former managers and that they will need to arrange them on your behalf i think that's a really powerful tool because it's kind of like a truth serum because you can effectively say to them what are they going to say about your overall performance? What about your strengths? What about your weaknesses? Your reason for leaving? And are there any potential areas for discrepancy with regards to the information you provided me throughout the interview and what they're then going to say? I think at that point, it tells you an awful lot because you kind of just wait and see what happens there. And usually that's going to quickly es- or, or, or information is quickly going to come to the service that you wouldn't have known. I think that gives you the opportunity to dig further. And then their ability to actually get the references and their former managers on the phone with you or not, I think is indicative of an awful lot. Because C players, to be quite frank, they don't want their former managers to talk to you. And the managers don't want to talk to you either because they don't necessarily want to go through the whole rigmarole of taking time out to give someone a bad reference, which could come back on them and cause them problems. A players, their former managers will give you a reference because there's no risk to them. They like them. They were disappointed to lose them. So they probably want to keep them on side for future opportunities. So I think it's indicative of A, the information that will come out when you when you use a talk, but also the reality of that individual being able to go away and get the references arranged for you, the reference calls. Oh, I think that's a massive thing with experience. So um, yes, let's, let's always ask and say, this is going to be a verbal reference and I don't want to talk to your HR department. I don't want a date confirmation. I want to talk to someone who actually knows your work. Um, it's really good point you just made about setting that up before the point of offer. Um, there's one other thing I would add, small detail, but has been very telling. Um, do ask before the point of offer if somebody's got any special occasions or holidays booked, because I found that it was at the point of offer when they'd accept it and then say, oh, and by the way, I've got three weeks holiday booked which had never been mentioned previously. Now, listen, if it's a special occasion and there's, there's, uh, they'll know about it in advance, but I don't think it's unreasonable to say, listen, we really need you to be working every day for your first three months so that, we, so that you can 
get the training you need in time so that you are in touch um, and being observed and given feedback by your colleagues at the early the earliest possible opportunity in a sustained way um so yeah ask about holidays as well core sales processes that'd be my last little bit to throw in there a completely different interview with a trainee because a trainee doesn't know understandably how to recruit whereas if you're bringing someone in who's an experienced recruiter what you want to do is make sure that you're hiring someone if they've got five years experience they genuinely have five years experience whereas a lot of the time what you've got is someone who's got one year's experience they've just repeated every year for five years So Mm -hmm. you should be able to dig into the specific core sales processes that they go through. You should be able to identify from a best practice perspective how good you believe they are, because it's not just about the outcome. If they build 500K, but effectively they've been sitting on these accounts that were handed to them and all they have to do is farm certain accounts. And it's easy because the accounts they've got have got a really good brand logo behind them, et cetera, et cetera. There's a huge difference between doing 500K in one business and one market than another. And it's not always skill or process orientated, the reason for those outcomes. So I think you have to be good at really digging into that stuff and understanding from a competency and technical perspective how good these people are. And again, I think that's going to work in your favour because the more you can demonstrate value to the potential interviewee, from a recruitment perspective, I think they're going to the more they're going to buy into your leadership. Whereas, again, I think with experienced recruiters, I think sometimes the interviews are just too easy. It's too soft. It's like, oh, you did 500K. I'm desperate to get you into my business. So you bring 500K to me. So I'm going to make the interview really easy. I'm going to try and be your friends. And I'm going to try and bond with the fact that we support the same football team. And I don't know about you, but A players are repelled by that stuff you know they want to be challenged they want to join a leadership team where they're going to learn something um, and they want to come out of that interview and in a good interview is kind of like a dance you know the interviewee is under no obligation to do anything other than present themselves in the best possible light you know and your job as the interviewer is to get information out of them they probably didn't plan on telling you when they came into that interview and the more skilled and better you are at that stuff I think the more credible you come and the more person will actually want the job. So not only do you qualify them more effectively, but I think you make the, the opportunity a lot more attractive by, by focusing in on those real, you know, ob- objective core sales processes and understanding where you could help them develop um, and where they're already good and where they've got areas of development. That's a really good point. You are demonstrating your own high level of skill, aren't you? And that's something that they can learn from. Okay. So um, excellent point there. Thank you. Let's just very quickly visit why having good, reliable hiring is so critical to future company valuation. Um, So uh, I think most people who are business owners will probably be aware that obviously most potential acquirers or investors want to see consistent growth and lower levels of attrition. Can I just throw that over to you, Alex, to add your points about why do you think good reliable hiring helps increase the value of your company yeah so you've used the word a fair bit already it's predictability so i think one of the things that you have to be able to do is demonstrate a repeatable scalable predictable model so what you're doing when you're trying to scale a business is really you're building a machine and there's certain unit economics within that which determine how predictable that business is that if you spend x the other end, it will produce Y. That, that's kind of in its most basic sense. So from a hiring perspective, 
if you hire 10 people and you can demonstrate that their ramp is X, their productivity is Y, and your retention rate is Z, then all of a sudden what you start to get is some predictability with regards to if we hire 10 people, this is what comes out the other end. So you want to be able to build a conveyor belt system where you bring people into the business. There's predictability about how productive they will be over different time frames, how many of them will still be with you after different time frames. And not just that, but once they've gone through that initial hiring conveyor belt, they then go onto the management route as an example. So if you hire 10 people, two or three of those statistically are likely to go onto our management route. Once they go onto the management route, they can then grow a team of six. That team of six, X, Y, Z. So what you start to do is you have this golden thread sort of running through the business where you can give people from a, from a valuation perspective, you can give them the reassurance of predictability. I keep using the word predictability. I can't help it now. It's stuck in my head. But I think that's the yeah. perfect word to be using with that example. Absolutely is, isn't it? Okay, um, thank you. And then just to wrap up, there's been a lot of big shift in the market since pre-pandemic, post-pandemic. Um, I'd be interested, uh, Alex, if you could tell listeners how you've changed what you're doing in, sorry, in the context of internal hiring. Um, what have you changed since before the pandemic? And has the profile that you look for changed in any way? Um, so that's a tough one because the, 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 the real answer is we haven't changed a huge amount as an organisation. There are some companies that have leaned heavily towards remote working, as an example. So I think that changes the profile if you're one of those organisations, because the very fact of someone working from home versus an office, I think the profile immediately changes and you have to start taking things into account, such as the ability to work autonomously versus in, a, in, a, in an office environment. So I think from a, from a, like a, a, a recruitment business that, that that's kind of something that will have changed but it hasn't massively impacted us at, us at strive i think one thing that's happening now and i think one thing that that probably also has happened across all verticals to a degree i think i think the standards went down so i think the pandemic after the pandemic there was this huge boom typically within the recruitment market and i think just like you can look at, you know, big tech at this moment in time and the VC back stuff, there, there was definitely overhiring going on. And typically what happens when you're overhiring is that maybe your standards come down to support the, the increased growth that you want to go through. I think recruitment companies followed suit. And I think a lot of recruitment companies have overhired. And I think in overhiring, what they've done is, you know, a, a bum in seat is better than no one at all. And actually, I believe strongly that's not not the right way to go. So I think what we're going to see now that the markets definitely have tightened a little bit. I think there's going to be less opportunity and more people fighting over less opportunity, which should mean that standards start to, to, to rise again a little bit. So that's something that I'm really vocal about because I think the recruitment industry, it's my it's my love and my passion um, outside of my family, of course. But I think sometimes it has a bit of a negative perception. And I think from a standards perspective, we can have a slightly higher bar to barrier to entry. I think we need to focus on that. And I think we also need to focus on the training and development piece once people come do come into your recruitment business. If we get those two things right, 
I think that's going to go a long way towards um, in, in improving the perception of the recruitment industry to, to those outside of, of, of this market. I completely agree with uh, your observation there about standards fell and we're now a, a lot of businesses that I observe now having a problem with a work a workforce that just has to be fed all the time. Um, so it's a bit like fledgling birds in a nest, you know, with the beaks open saying, give me jobs because I don't know what else to do apart from fill jobs. And um, there are, I would add to that, there, I think there was um, a period of rampant pay inflation. Mm -hmm. It was completely unjustified in the recruitment industry. And you're, you're nodding there in recognition. I think that basic salaries went up, but expectations of, uh, in terms of outputs did not go up. Um, I think that those are, it's pretty hard to change back uh, legally from, from that position. But a high basic salary, you know, will encourage different, slightly different behaviours very often. Um, and... There's one other point that I would make, and that is that actually over the, whatever, God, 37 years that I've been interviewing people, I've definitely say that I've noticed a, a shift in the success profile. It's a small one, but it's subtle. So way back uh, when recruitment was frankly a lot less regulated than it is now, that the, what's referred to as the classic lazy Z profile, everyone, listeners can Google the, the term, they'll get it. Um, but it's a very goal orientation, high communication and influencing skills and low levels of compliance was the traditional hire um, in recruitment. And I think that that is um, still probably a good way to go. You just described me, Alison. So thank heavens that you, you <laughs> qualified that point. Still, it's still a good way to go for, for startup business. Sure. But actually, as recruitment becomes more regulated and as your business gets bigger, you will have need to have some ability for people to follow processes. Just, for example, to make sure that data gets into your CRM um, uh, at some point and that, um, you know, compliance processes are followed. OK, we've run out of time, which is such a shame because, and I'm sure listeners will be able to tell, um, I feel like you and I could talk forever, um, Alex, about so much that we um, both shared and had different experiences in. But you've been a marvellous guest. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, listeners who are interested in getting in touch with you directly, how should they reach you, Alex? I'm on LinkedIn. I'm reasonably vocal on LinkedIn. So hopefully you should be able to find me pretty easily. But no, anyone who's interested in talking about opportunities at Strive, of course, um, message me directly. Um, thank you. And I'm Alison Humphreys. You can reach me on alison at recruitmentleadership.co.uk or check out my website, recruitmentleadership.co.uk. Thank you very much for listening and thank you, Alex. Thanks, Alison. You've been listening to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe, review and share so that others can find the podcast too. We really appreciate your support. If you have any questions about the topics covered or wish to find out more about recruitment leadership, please email alison at recruitmentleadership.co.uk referencing the podcast. We're also on LinkedIn where you can follow recruitment leadership and connect with Alison Humphreys. Thank you for listening and we hope you join us next time for another episode of the Recruitment Leadership Podcast.